Hi, welcome back to the podcast. I'm joined again today with Nicholas for another episode where we're planning on going through a few topics. Um, So to start the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about police funding and recent changes that were influenced by crime in Chinatown. We're all going to move into labor and focus most of the episode talking about some new changes to labor that are happening in Alberta, um, talking about the value of workers in the province and generally across Canada, and a little bit also about the worker resistance that's happened um, just based on some of the um, labor practices, but also certain events that have taken place um, in Alberta. So yeah, Nicholas, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I think it's good to be finally doing um, an episode where we're able to touch on some more of these topics. I think even just in personal conversations and in what we've kind of been paying attention to in the world around us, uh, we've seen a lot of stuff around the labor movement and a lot of stuff has just become a lot more pressing, um, obviously over decades, uh, but especially over the last couple of years here and throughout the pandemic. And even, you could say, exacerbated in the last few months, um, so-called coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like a topic that we care a lot about and that we want to uh, touch on more um, in, this, in this podcast. So yeah, glad to be uh, talking more about that um, in this episode. But yeah, I definitely wanted to follow up from a lot of what we had discussed in the last episode regarding the uh, police and municipal response to violence in Chinatown and just those all too familiar cycles of growing police power. Um, just earlier this week, Edmonton City Council voted uh, to increase the city's budget for the police to an astounding $407 million. So we finally broke that ceiling past $400 million. And that was also approved by city council in a vote of 12 to 1. So this was not a split decision whatsoever. That's pretty much the entire city council. Mm-hmm. And I think to add um, insult to injury, as cliche as that may sound, um, here's a quote from Andrew Knack specifically about how the city is proposing to raise property taxes in order to make up for uh, police budget shortfalls, essentially. So here's a quote from Andrew Knack, quote, I think there's a lot of folks who would understand that if we have a declining fund that is no longer getting the same amount of money that was going to help in part the police, that they'll be okay with their tax dollars offsetting that amount to make the whole, sorry, to make them whole again. So when he says them, I'm assuming that he's referring to police. Um, And I feel like this like comment especially kind of got to um, me when I read it, just because of how much it just like speaks for people. Um, Obviously, these politicians represent us, but I don't think they often take the chance to speak so explicitly um, in the shoes of people by saying that we'd be okay with spending more money for this 400 plus million dollar service. 
Um, yeah, pretty rich if you ask me. I, I, I certainly don't want my money going towards more police. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of people feel the same way. But Andrew Knack obviously disagrees. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you can uh, hear that. We're dealing with um, a little bit of uh, traffic noises here. Um, I'm not really sure what that is, but uh, I actually thought that it wouldn't be as loud uh, now that <laughs> the Oilers are out of the playoffs, um, thankfully. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're still we're still dealing with um, a little bit of that over here, I guess. But yeah, very disturbing comments from Andrew Knack. Those were actually comments that he provided the week before the vote to increase the police budget. So I guess at that point, he was just kind of speculating. And I remember seeing this article um, where he made these comments saying that Edmontonians are going to be willing to pay more. um, And just seeing that as kind of an ominous sign for uh, council's support um, for a greater police budget. And of course, that ended up coming to fruition so it's uh also i guess i would say disturbing just how quickly this all happened um after you know a couple years ago we saw counselors hashtagging blm um feigning basically their solidarity with marginalized and oppressed communities who have experienced and uh, vocalized their concerns about police brutality and lack of police accountability. Um, it's been very quick to make a full 180 and uh, now enthusiastically support greater police power directly at the cost of citizens or of the the people here who are going to be um, be policed uh, and. Um, especially from counselors like, I guess, Andrew Knack, who I would say Andrew Knack is typically thought of as a more liberal or at least like center left um, city counselor. So definitely to hear this kind of uh, this kind of rhetoric from him is just an indicator of how clear the support for police funding and police power is on our city council currently. Yeah, this 180 definitely has me um, pretty depressed, if I'm being completely honest, because thinking back to how much lip service was given towards, um, yeah, police reform, people talking about uh, defunding in a relatively serious term. And even a few weeks ago, city council was debating on um, whether or not they should continue to adopt the police uh, funding formula, which we know has kept police funds going up for years now. They also were debating freezing the budget. So that was on the table. It seemed like it was going to be a pretty close vote. The vote got moved and pushed to um, a few months later, so they had more time to, I think, investigate the funding formula. And then in the meantime, essentially what we saw was some pretty open um, public political pressure coming from a few places, coming from the uh, police union. We saw a lot of weaponizing uh, this violence in Chinatown. Um, disorder on the LRT transit system and on uh, transit generally. 
um, those things were directly used to essentially, yeah, justify more police funding, blame these problems on a supposed defunding of the police when we know that they've received more money, um, and essentially also put in this false notion that the solution to these problems is, of course, more police, which I think we all know these problems existed before and they will continue to, to exist even though we've continued to increasingly fund police. Um, and the other kind of side of public pressure on council definitely came from the justice minister, Tyler Shandro. So he came in and um, if we can find the clip here, it might be useful to play, but I'll try to paraphrase it and essentially had a press conference announcing more money for um, Crime Stoppers, 100 um Sorry, $800,000 over three years for this um, Crime Stoppers organization. Um, and during the press conference, he um, talked about Chinatown, got a bunch of facts wrong about what's going on with police funding in Edmonton, what happened with certain crimes in Edmonton, um, but still criticized council heavily said that the province would step in if council didn't take police funding seriously and didn't come up with um, what they later requested, which was a plan um, to address public safety. So all of this public pressure, um, council folded and they gave the police exactly what they wanted um, and basically unanimously did so. So very disappointing. I think it maybe shows how little we should probably invest in council and how much um, importance should be put in trying to find alternatives as difficult as that is because I'll be the first person to acknowledge the fact that thinking of alternatives and implementing alternatives to what we currently um, have is is incredibly difficult but I think it's worth starting that difficult work for sure yeah I think what you the way you laid it out I think is I guess I would say the logical narrative, or that's kind of how it played out in the media. Um, not to get all conspiracy theory here, uh, I say this word all the time, but it is very sinister how that sequence of events happened. And it's hard to not think that that was very deliberate. And just going back to, uh, because there's just a goldmine of Andrew Knack quotes on this subject here, Andrew Knack acknowledged the city heard calls to reform policing and boost money for alternatives in the 2020 public hearings, and he would like to see how the city can fund more, po more safety programs alongside police. Recently, though, he's also heard from others that EPS should get even more money, he said. So the way that the Edmonton Journal... Um, covered that here and the way that Andrew Knack is spinning the narrative seems very deliberate in order to try and pivot the messaging towards clear support for police. So I do think that it's, it's hard to not see this whole sequence of events as uh, a very deliberate attempt to pivot uh, public discourse and um, I guess, as they would hope, public sentiment uh, towards greater support for police. And uh, as we now know, that resulted in an increase to the police budget where the city is now giving them $407 million. And 
the council is in support of returning to this kind of Don Iveson funding formula, which basically guarantees the police more money every year or this reliable base amount of money for their budget that we basically just trust them with. So yeah, that's where we are now. And there's some more quotes from city council uh, alongside this uh, article um, announcing the increase. Councillor Ashley Salvador saying the base amount will provide certainty. It's very clear Edmontonians absolutely expect us to deliver policing as a basic core service and adequately fund police. Again, these very like kind of deliberate quotes that are meant to drive public sentiment in favor of the police. Um, you know, even Aaron Paquette, another councillor who I think is largely thought of as a more liberal or center, center-left councillor, um, he's, you know, saying, yeah, times are changing and the way we do policing is changing, um, but we still need to basically give the police this money um, so that they can continue to do their job in the meantime. So I guess trying to downplay uh, concerns from the community or trying to push this uh, uh, more pragmatic approach kind of messaging. And, uh, oh yeah, right, Sarah Hamilton here is (laughs) trying to make the argument that uh, the funding formula will actually make the police service take on more financial risk. Um, And what she says is, it makes the police more accountable because they have to give their best estimate on the resources they need to provide policing to the community. Um, That's just like so clearly wrong. Basically writing the police a blank check that keeps getting bigger every year absolutely does not make the police more accountable. Omar, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I don't know where that kind of thinking goes in, but if anything, it reminds me more and like maybe brings me more to your side of like conspiracy theory kind of stuff where it's like this narrative is being pushed out and then everything is just being made to fit within that regardless um regardless of if it's true or not because this this idea that somehow because the police have to report what they need because that's the way that they get money that's going to keep them more accountable completely ignores the fact that their budget is completely private essentially we don't get you know this line by line um breakdown oh yeah sorry and just to interrupt the things we do know you know we just found out today the police chief's salary is three hundred forty thousand dollars that itself is obviously peanuts compared to the whatever four million they're spending on a new plane Mm -hmm. um the millions that they or was it one million that they spent on that tank something like that yeah no anyways Um, and even as uh uh as we Oh, maybe we didn't mention this on a previous episode, but the counselor, Karen Princip or Principe or whatever, mm. said, oh, <laughs> I don't know where, where the police budget goes, but if they say they need a plane, then I trust that they need a plane. So clearly there's no accountability no. going on here. Even the city councilors don't know where the police budget goes, 
where this $400 million goes. And they don't even question kind of egregious spending on things like a plane. And so what council might say here in, in this whole conversation about accountability, when they refuse to hold this accountability, I think a lot of the times what happens is they say, oh, this is the police commission's job. You know, we're just here to do what the police commission recommends. But then you have counselors like Councillor Sarah Hamilton, who is on the police commission, who's bringing up all these red flags about lack of accountability, lack of transparency on the police commission and gets directly attacked, you know, multiple times and is, you know, is called out for employing someone who's supposedly anti-police and somehow her employment of this person is, you know, a conflict of interest. And this is a reason why she shouldn't be on the commission. Um, Or, you know, people going after um, Michael Jans, for example, um, repeatedly. And I feel like these are just cases um, to show that, you know, we can pass on the blame. And then when we get to situations where people are actually accountable, then we can just move in and just, you know, try to remove people who have the actual power or are on these commissions that are supposed to control the police. Um, and those commissions are, again, tightly controlled. And people who do have these concerns or who raise these flags, um, yeah, get complaints filed against them that are almost always baseless. Um, but I think also serve as a um, as a good intimidation tool, as a good, um, you know, I guess, tool to put pressure on people to make them realize that, um, you know, there are consequences for um, the critiques that they level. Um, and this like new term that people like to throw around um, of anti-police um, as if, you know, there's this dichotomy of, you know, pro versus anti and not just a very clear understanding and analysis of the situation that we're in um, and a realization of what the solutions are needed to get out of that situation. Um, so yeah. we're, we're, we're anti though. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. If, if we're going to think in those terms, yeah, I think you can guess what we are, but I'll, I'll, I'll proudly wear that badge because quite honestly, I don't think that, um, it can have the negative impact that the people who use it, um, think it would, um, at least not on my life, but yeah, that's, it's, it's a sad state that we're in for sure. Yeah. And I also just want to mention that, the whole idea of returning to the funding formula, I think why that's really important and why something that uh, the police would really push for is that that in itself is really a way of driving public sentiment in favor of the police. So just to explain that a little more, um, some things that we've pointed out in the past are just the way that the media tends to cover uh, any kind of change to the police budget you know if uh if the police budget is increased but perhaps not as much as they were expecting the way the headlines are run is that they are getting less than they expected so it sounds like they're getting a cut in their budget and that makes people think that the police are under attack that allows the police to come out and say that they're under attack and that then drives public sentiment in favor of the police. To explain why, I guess, in this case, they increased the, the city's um, police budget from $385 million to $407 million is apparently because the 
police used to get a certain amount of money from photo radar that I guess going forward, the, the province is going to be keeping more of that money. So in order to uh, make up for that, I guess the city is going to be paying that money um, and now giving the police $407 million. And um, I, I think that's the ostensible reason given for it. But I think that money actually even more than makes up what they said they would be out uh, due to the lack of money from, from photo radar. Oh, yeah. So anyways, that's a little bit of context here. But that money from photo radar isn't something that was part of the public discussion before. Like, I think before we just thought, oh, okay, $385 million for police, that's an enormous amount of money. Uh, we're not thinking that they're also getting additional money there from photo radar. So to come back now and say, oh, well, we actually were getting this $20 million from photo radar. So now that we're not going to get that going forward or potentially not going to get that, the city needs to give us more money. Um, that's kind of just moving the goalposts here. And the way that this discussion was covered when um, the media was uh, writing about um, council's upcoming decision to either increase the budget to match this uh, loss of revenue from photo radar or not, the whole way the media was framing it is like, is the police going to potentially lose this, lose this money? Um, so again, the police or the, the media really has this tendency to cover things in a way that drives public uh, sentiment towards police and introducing a funding formula back into the mix just creates this uh, increasing baseline for expected police funds against which the media is always going to measure further discussions or changes to the police budget. So it's always going to seem uh, it's always going to seem like the police budget is under attack or that um, the police are getting budget cuts when in reality that number is just going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And like, just to touch on like a quick point on the media there, um, I think that was like good, really good media analysis in the sense that um, a lot of newsrooms, a lot of the beats, a lot of the stories and the thing, the, the manpower that's put towards covering things is done in kind of favor or is beholden to these institutions like the police. So the center of stories or the focus of stories is always going to be in that position of what is threatening this institution? What is this institution's interests? Where are they positioned in relation to how they used to be or how they might be in the future? And the position of like, um, like a regular citizen, of someone who's marginalized on the streets who might be policed, uh, victims of police brutality. These are all um, separate, maybe unique, you know, one-off stories. These aren't a part of, I think, the typical main narrative unless they're inserted in there um, when, you know, we have regular stories or regular coverage of like, yeah, city hall budget decisions, you know, police lobbying city hall for more funding um, or general budget conversations. So, yeah, I feel like that framing is also... Um, almost like an inherent part of the way news is, is built up and its history, really. Yep, so we'll try and keep a good pulse on what's going on here, but it um, looks like we're uh, sticking to the unfortunate status quo here. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so we wanted to talk a little bit about something that happened in the House of Commons、um, this week, where Jagmeet Singh,、uh, leader of the federal NDP, tries to bring up the issue of inflation and Canadians not being able to afford groceries or gas.、Um, I'm not sure why. Okay, I don't pay attention to what goes on in、um, Parliament sittings, but. Um, I'm not sure why this would be like novel, or maybe the first time this would be brought up, because obviously people have been going through this for many months. But basically, what happened was that, and you can go to his TikTok, I guess, not to plug his his TikTok, but this is where the video is.、Um, basically,、uh, other MPs, and he labels them as conservative MPs,、um, start laughing, and then he can't finish his point because they're laughing, and then the Speaker of the House. Uh, is the Speaker of the House?、Is、I think、Parliament? it's the Speaker of the House. American Canadian.、Uh, ooh, no, I think it's the、Maybe、Speaker it of the, the House. house? I'm pretty okay, sure it's、great. the Speaker of the House. Yeah.、Um, asks him to restart, and then he just points out that he had to restart because they were laughing at the idea of、uh, people not being able to afford their groceries. So, anyways, Omar, you actually brought this、um, to、uh, my attention. So, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting video.、Um, obviously, the reaction, the focus in the video is this laughter that comes after the comment that is made about Canadians not being able to afford、um, groceries, you know, basic necessities because of inflation. Companies are raking in record high profits,、um, and the NDP wants to tax those parties and put money right in, or sorry, tax those companies and put money. Right into people's pockets, and at first I was a little bit confused as to who exactly the laughter might have been directed to, because I think Jagmeet Singh has been the、um, has been the victim of a lot of like pointed harassment, basically about his decision to. Align himself with Justin Trudeau. So part of me was thinking, oh, what if they're just laughing at him? But then I read more comments and I realized that there's a pretty high possibility that these politicians are just basically laughing at the statements that he's making, you know, and basically laughing at the fact that,、um, yeah, millions of Canadians are essentially struggling struggling to pay their Basic necessities,、um, and they could be laughing at that. They could also be laughing、um, at this idea that companies are making record high profits.、Um, the reason I say that is because a lot of conservatives and the, I guess, finance kind of side of media has criticized this talking point. By saying that、um, this is this is normal that every business. Needs to be directed and is directed towards making profit and revenue. So if that happens, that's inherently a good thing, regardless of the circumstances. Which I think we're going to talk more about it later. But I think we can clearly see why that's wrong when we have, you know, people struggling to make, you know, basic basic food, basic rent, basic、um, utility payments.、Um, So yeah, I feel like when I saw the video, it, it reinforced、um, this kind of inherent disrespect that I think is coming down constantly 
from what you might call, um, you know, the ruling class or people who are in positions to own capital, people who are in positions to control levers of power, um, I think are are pretty um, very disrespectful, very condescending, I think, towards working people in Canada who not only struggle um, to provide for themselves, but I think also are really propping up this entire system. They are the ones, we are the ones who provide value, who make sure that Canada even runs to begin with. Yet, these are also the same people who get laughed at and who get ridiculed or who have someone who's speaking on their behalf get ridiculed. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty pretty disgusting situation, in my opinion. Um, but the fact that it can happen so brazenly and so openly and so publicly, I think definitely speaks to the current situation we have now. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, I do still think it's unclear, well, who was laughing and what they were laughing at. I think all that's clear is that he saw this as an opportunity to... Um, paint it, I guess, as you just described, right? Uh, I think something you also mentioned is that um, Jagmeet Singh has gotten uh, a lot of criticism for aligning himself with the liberals and basically uh, by doing so, just undermining his whole party's um, agenda. And I think what is perhaps equally condescending and elitist as what Jagmeet Singh is saying is laughter from conservative members of parliament towards members of the working class who are struggling is his own use of the working class's struggles kind of as a pawn in his own political game to paint himself, I guess, as an advocate uh, for this um, group of people that he, through his own actions, has really failed and set himself up to fail to actually help. No, absolutely. I think that's that's a really, really um, very important point to make because there there have been several opportunities for the federal NDP to, I think, make deeper connections and more meaningful connections with working class people to represent them in a meaningful way, to pass policies that would um, that would benefit them in a meaningful way. And I think it does nothing to help the NDP's, um, I guess, characterization as liberals in a hurry to align with the federal liberals and create a coalition government, basically, to allow them to rule. Um, And I think it also makes it very difficult for him to credibly criticize Justin Trudeau, um, who, in my opinion, has been relatively disastrous for workers. Um, It makes it very hard to criticize him credibly if you are giving him a bunch of power Mm. instead of really standing... Um, standing on your own, which is very difficult to do, but I think is is what should have been done, in my opinion. Um, standing on your own as a party and giving people um, giving people real policies, giving people real alternatives that they can support on their own, that you can lead with and that you can go to an election with. Because I think 
what the NDP often does, and I think especially provincially. And we just saw them lose in Ontario recently um, to a pretty weak Doug Ford government, if you ask me. Um, we have an election coming up in Alberta. And what the NDP does, at least in my opinion and what I've seen, is they love attacking what other parties are doing. I think they love latching on to current policy, but what they don't do is provide a very clear, tangible working policy or option or, or alternative for people to actually buy into. Because I think mm. it's very simple and very easy to point the finger or to base all of your policies off not doing what the other people are doing. But to actually give people something um, is a completely different story. So, Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in this, in this situation here where essentially he is in power because of how he's aligned himself with, with the liberal government, he, what he's offering as solution is just the ultimate platitudes. He just says, you know, we want to tax these excess profits. Obviously, that's not going to happen because the reason those aren't getting taxed is because of loopholes that obviously are not getting closed. And uh, we're going to put that directly into the pockets of workers. That literally means nothing. It just sounds, I guess it sounds nice, Um Maybe if it's the first time you're hearing it, but this is kind of what politicians always say when they're using the working class as pawns um, in order to uh, bolster their own their own uh, seat of power. And then kind of, yeah, what he's reduced to is because he's uh, has his hands tied behind his back. He isn't able to really criticize the people in power. He's unable to um, criticize what's being done about the... Uh, inflation situation or what is being done to support uh, workers and ordinary people um, he just has to paint it as this like oh the conservatives are laughing and I care about people um, and that's yeah that's really all it it just gets um, gets reduced to so anyways I think takeaways here are just obviously everyone knows that inflation is happening and is experiencing inflation. And I think this is just a good window into how uh, and I guess why nothing is um, getting done about it in our uh, federal government. No, absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think I think there's also something to be said about the fact that, um, yeah, the NDP aren't advocating against capitalism, a system that inherently causes inflation, which we know impacts workers the most who have to deal with higher cost of living and stagnant wages. Um, so, yeah, I, I have very little, um, I guess, support um, or understanding for a party that um, still supports this disastrous system um, and has no interest in even speaking critically about it publicly. Yeah, I think at one point there was a little bit more hope for the federal NDPs. Um, I think the like, Provincially, you know, we've basically always had uh, a conservative NDP party here, at least in like in any kind of recent memory when they've actually been close to to power. Um, but yeah, it is very sad to see how the federal NDP party has been diminished um, post uh, coalition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we saw this um, article just come out today about how the Alberta oil industry is having some issues recruiting uh, workers. Um, so basically, this article uh, highlights that 
it's actually weird that they, they frame it as we've gotten through a downturn um, and a recession. I guess they're kind of talking about maybe a little bit more of an isolated oil recession that happened in 2015 and 2016. And now that uh, I guess this is also a surprise to me. Now things are booming in the um, Alberta oil industry. Uh, they're having trouble finding workers. Um, so uh, the president of the Petroleum Services Association of Canada uh, says that they're um, going to different lengths to recruit people. Cringily, <laughs> they say, uh, whether it's the South Asian community, the Filipino community, Latin community, using different languages to attract people back into this industry. Um, but then something that um, she also says is that the provincial government is looking at making temporary foreign workers more accessible. Um, oh, sorry, never mind. She didn't actually say that. It was the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors says the provincial government is looking at making temporary foreign workers more accessible. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, this is um, this is a great example of a very historic trend that from the beginning of, you know, settler Canada, bringing in migrant workers to build the railroad, sorry, <laughs> the railroad um, across Canada um, to today where we have essentially a, a, an advertisement in the news saying that we have this. Uh, boom and bust market. We have all these opportunities that were essentially cut because of market downturns that are now available again. Um, these opportunities aren't being taken up by our local population for whatever reason. Usually those reasons involve low pay, um, a lot of sacrifice being made for having to relocate, um, several factors that are probably not being compensated. And the solution to that is to bring in more um, black and brown and Asian faces from other countries that are happy and willing to be exploited on our terms um, to fill these jobs, which, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like these policies just like to their very core are incredibly rotten and exploitative. Um, yet the entire framing of this article and I think the framing of the conversation when these things are brought up is entirely done in favor of the employer. Um, and whatever the employer's needs are, whatever the industry's needs are, um, yeah, while we literally bring in people from other countries for the sole purpose of doing this unwanted labor um, and shipping them out essentially because they're temporary. They're not meant to be Canadians. They're only here to um, do our dirty work. Um, and that's supposed to also be benefiting them because I think when this is done too, we don't view it as um, them necessarily helping us. We're always put in this position where we're giving support. Um, we're giving people opportunities to make more money than they would elsewhere. Um, also, without ever factoring in why we live in a global economy where one place is livable with wages and the other places are not. Um, and Canada's role to play in that as well. But yeah, I think I think that's kind of my takeaway from, from the situation. And I definitely focused a lot on this comment on, um, yeah, temporary foreign workers and and um, just, I guess, all this lobbying being done for, for the oil industry and, and the opportunities that they have here. Yeah, I think it was also reminding me a little bit um, of what we saw a couple of years ago. 
and I don't I don't think this was covered necessarily well enough at the time, but the whole COVID outbreaks at meatpacking plants and just how how that was so clearly handled by the province in a way that would like align with the priorities of those meatpacking plants rather than uh, trying to protect those workers or to um, just build a society that takes care of the people that are providing um, or that are creating the value here, right? So yeah, I guess just to, I guess, yeah, not to get into too much detail recapping that, but basically there were just these COVID outbreaks at um, the uh, facilities and, um, you know, despite all of the caution in other sectors around uh, protecting people or try, uh, trying to keep people at a, at a distance, um, it was just very clear here that they didn't want to shut down these plants or enforce any kind of uh, workplace safety measures um, because they wanted to prioritize the continued operation and profit of these companies. And um, there was even these that whole kind of scandal where Dina Hinshaw, who at the time was like just idolized across the well, I wouldn't say across the province, but among the kind of liberal elite circles, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. She was talking about like the strong work ethic of like the Filipino uh, workers because of their their culture. Never, never, never a question of why these people have to, you know, supposedly mm-hmm. have this strong work ethic. You know, maybe it might be because we're exploiting them at a very strong level. You know, I don't know if that's ever um, a factor in these comments, but yeah, pretty, pretty racist um, comments here, and just like tapping into these people's um, just inherent um, exploitive relationship with yeah. the place that they're in and with their employers. Like, well, and it's very similar just to the whole the sentiment maybe still exists but for a long time this was it was in like textbooks how like black people are just stronger and like don't need um anesthesia or whatever tougher and can handle more pain really similar rhetoric to just what um was was being said said here right um but yeah i mean ultimately uh it took someone dying um in order for them to actually uh close down uh one of those facilities and Anyways, yeah, that's just, um, yeah, when I saw this kind of article about the, the oil patch and them looking to the, the province looking to increase the number of temporary foreign workers available for these, uh, available to fill this gap in the job market, um, in the, in the oil sands, it was, um, yeah, just really reminded me of that kind of disregard for, um, the lives of the uh, working class that's, you know, been been demonstrated for us before. Yeah, it's I, I I really resent the fact that in in so many different cases when issues are brought up at uh, I guess government level, it almost takes um, a warm body or or someone who just died in order to successfully advocate for some kind of change or stoppage or um, you know any kind of reform, whether good or bad. Um, you know, we see that with this meatpacking um, plant and the COVID situation. We see that in Chinatown with the murder that happened. Um, 
yeah, I just think it's a it's a pre- it's a really negative trend because so many of the factors that lead to people dying are incredibly preventable um, with you know proper um, not even proper oversight, but just like clear communication and understanding when people tell you what their needs are and actually governing on the basis of what people actually need um not what budgets or governments or you know elites or multinational corporations need um but oftentimes i feel like that's the case you just need you need someone to die um and oftentimes i feel like that person ends up being you know, some kind of racialized person, some person who's really suffering from the the brunt of um, a racist society and a society that's built on intense classism and intense um, class division. So, yeah, it's really, really sad to see. Yep. And yeah, as you as you mentioned, the uh, foundations of our labor market here are really built on the exploitation of um, people of color and um, uh, I guess, yeah, foreign workers. And that's just, yeah, really alive and well today too. Um, and this is, this is kind of uh, an, an article from earlier this year, but just this whole discussion that we're having today was um, just kind of, I think, making it relevant again. Um, basically, there was a press conference where um, Jason Kenney in March uh, had just said that, no, Alberta won't be raising our minimum wage. You know, he was asked this because BC was raising their, their minimum wage. So um, he was asked, is Alberta going to be raising our minimum wage as well? And uh, he basically just said no. And um, he goes on to further explain uh, the tens of thousands of jobs that were lost during the last recession, um, again, the, the oil recession in 2015, 2016 that we were just talking about, um, those thousands of jobs were lost because employers couldn't afford a 50% increase in wage costs. And now that Alberta has done away with the vast majority of its COVID-19 public health measures, it's not the time for an uptick in minimum wage. Many of those minimum wage jobs are in that service sector where you have struggling small businesses that have been absolutely devastated through COVID. Many of them are financially flat on their back. They got deeply encumbered in debt just to keep the doors open. Only now are things fully opening for them to get their business back to normal levels. So I think adding yet another major increase on minimum wage would probably be the end of many of these small hospitality businesses that bravely survived the pandemic. And, um, of course, this is just yet another reflection of how the government and like those in power just really align themselves with corporate interests above the interests of workers. But um, I think this is also just a really good example here of how the idea of the small guy or like Kenny says here, small hospitality businesses that barely survive the pandemic, like uh, <laughs> as someone reading this, like our, our emotional attachment and empathy for that kind of person or that kind of business is used in order to drive support for really the big corporations, the ones that are having record pro- that had record profits throughout the pandemic, 
and probably laid off a lot of people anyway, and uh, where an increase in the minimum wage would actually make a considerable difference in the society here. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty incredible to watch that happen because, like, I just think to myself, or even for any listener, it's like, how many people do you actually know who work in these like mythical, you know, mom and pop or small business small businesses that are being described here by Jason Kenny? And yeah, the truth is, is that most people really don't work in these situations, and the labor market is is dominated by large mar- multinationals who guard their revenues at any um at any cost essentially so so yeah but the narrative is still driven towards um this more sympathetic view of business because um saying that you're you're not raising minimum wage because you want to protect walmart um doesn't really necessarily go well in terms of public image but i think that's essentially what's happening here if anything it also plays into um this myth that I think is is very useful in capitalism that everyone can become this kind of, I guess, like small business entrepreneur and, you know, generate um, oh, the significance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the American dream type where we're all just a few good decisions away from owning our own business empire or, you know, pa- making passive income, you know, buying property, doing all these things that you're essentially told are completely available to you as long as you make the right decisions and, and uh, will noble, lead you yeah, yeah and, and are knowable and respectable and you know fit within all these different image um boxes um so as long as you do these things you will ascend up the ladders and you will become this you know mythical small business owner who needs to be protected by the government when in reality um yeah, a lot of wealth that gets created in these situations, when it even does get created, is essentially handed down by families um, in this kind of continuous way, but also ignores the fact that, yeah, 99.9% of people will, will never will never reach those heights, no matter how much they try or no matter how much they do, because fundamentally, this system is built on scarcity. If we could all become what they say we could become, um, the system wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't function because it requires a large portion of us to to really be um, workers. Workers in the sense that um, you know you're exploited and your your value is is basically funneled to the top. So yeah, I think I think that's something I thought of for yeah. sure. Is like how it it plays into that too. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, a lot of people do do buy into that and and bank their hopes and dreams on on maybe one day becoming um, one of the ruling elite. Or, yeah. yeah, well, not even the ruling elite, I guess. But yeah, that idea of like you own your own business and you have freedom and it's a noble cause and you're contributing to society and we need to protect that because that is at the core of the like yeah American dream or Canadian dream or whatever. Um, I think the the irony here as well is that in in aligning our government or our society's priorities with um, capitalistic incentives and with the priorities of really big businesses, we're also contributing to uh, to driving out those small businesses, right? Mm, and yeah. to like these these small businesses, right? Like a lot of them, 
you know, probably do pay their workers well already or have a very small staff or are just family run and um, trying to get by like that. And, you know, it is tough. But a large reason that uh, that it is tough is because a very large company can come in with economies of scale and because the minimum wage is much lower than the, the cost of living, they don't have to pay their their workers very much and so are able to just compete or are, are able to compete in the marketplace at a way lower cost and then they take customers and business away from those small businesses so yeah that's definitely i don't know definitely a point of uh irony here as well mm-hmm. and i think um just because we were talking about in the last episode the uh the school shooting in um, Texas. I don't know if you <laughs> did. You see like uh, the thing where Matthew McConaughey like went to the White oh, House. Oh yeah, yeah, I definitely saw that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. actually, I think uh, I think he got a lot of um, like praise from you know people kind of across the spectrum. But I think it's because of how he outlined the the whole kind of responsible gun owner debate, right? And I think there's a lot of parallels here because, you know, in this case, Jason Kenney uses the idea of the little guy, the the small business, kind of in order to distract from the issue of minimum wage. And I think what typically happens um, in discussions about uh, gun regulation is that the idea of the responsible gun owner is used um, to distract from the issue of uh, gun regulation. What is typically said is like, oh, well, if you introduce, you know, these background checks or if you um, are introducing these restrictions on weapons, then that's really just going to harm the responsible uh, gun owners who didn't do anything wrong. And the way that Matthew McConaughey laid it out in this speech is that, like, as a responsible gun owner or speaking for the responsible gun owner community, it's unjust or unfair that people can go and commit these terrible acts of violence when we're all out here trying to do our best to be responsible, right? It's like, what's the point of trying to be responsible if the... Uh, regulation or lack of regulation is still allowing for these atrocities to happen. And so I think, again, trying to draw a parallel to this situation here, I think just probably a more productive way to think about it um, is like, why are we letting these big businesses get away with um, not paying their workers fairly while taking record profits? Uh, Why are we allowing them to do that? Obviously through, through many means, but by Uh, One way that we're allowing them to do that is by keeping the minimum wage really low. Why are we letting them get away with that when small businesses are are doing their best to survive but are are still struggling and are kind of beholden to these rules and, um, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, trying to provide for their own workers? Probably one of the best... Uh, or I guess you say worst examples of these um, large companies that take advantage of their workforce is, of course, Amazon. And um, there was actually some really good, uh, really good journalism that we saw um, 
actually, when was this? Uh, a couple months ago, or maybe a little bit longer. But um, yeah, earlier this year, um, Ashlyn Chand wrote this article titled "How Amazon Beat the Union in Alberta," and basically. She went undercover with the、uh, Jacobin and Ricochet、uh, to work at the Amazon warehouse for、uh, a few months during this union drive, and basically witnessed all of the ways that Amazon、uh, was able to crush that、um, that unionization effort. Spoiler alert. Yeah, no, this is a really good piece of journalism done by Ashlyn, and I think really exposed not only some very interesting, I guess, working conditions at Amazon, uncovering interesting. How, well, interesting in the sense that I guess、um, interesting is not the word I wanted to use. I guess I wanted to use like、um, it's not like exemplary, but. Like the working conditions at Amazon, I think serve a really good example of what's going on at other workplaces or the larger working context of Alberta. In the sense that it's a very large corporation that is operating in a very high demand industry that is employing、um, a very diverse workforce. Um, but is clearly doing、um, a lot of things that are keeping them oppressed and、um, keeping them in very difficult working conditions. But knows that it will always have this kind of conveyor belt of workers coming in.、Um, so it's very emblematic. I think that's the proper term.、Yeah. This 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 reporting that was done by Ashland very emblematic of I think a lot of other situations. Um, and I think also of the、um, the labor organizing effort and the pitfalls and maybe some lessons that can be learned from this failed effort because of the approach that the Teamsters used to try to organize、um, and. Um, I think their approach was maybe characterized as old-fashioned, out of touch for sure. That that's a word that Ashlyn said. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's lessons to be learned、um, from that for sure because、um, the need for unions and the need for organization within workplaces like this、um, isn't going anywhere, and the working conditions、um, aren't going anywhere either. So I think、um, yeah, it's a great great piece of reporting to to continue the conversation and to definitely learn things from as well. Okay, so then you should say, and I, I got this actually. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and 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 so as a part of the episode, I had the pleasure of actually interviewing Ashlyn and and having a conversation more specifically about the reporting, so that we were able to share some of these stories and, and get the firsthand insight from from her. As you know, she was also a worker in the warehouse. She she not only reported, but you know, did the job herself. So the interview touches a little bit about her background. Some Of her experiences, what she saw,、um, and kind of culminates this this really great piece of reporting that we will definitely link in the show description if you want to read it. So I wrote an article for Ricochet on migrant housing,、uh, and essentially I pitched another article to Ricochet afterwards, like two or three months after that article,、um, which they rejected. But they had this other opportunity, and essentially they were like, "Oh, we want to send someone." To an Amazon warehouse, whichever is nearest to you, and kind of work there for like three months. 
And then uh, while I was working at the YEG facility, Teamsters announced that they were going to try and unionize Amazon in Canada. And so Nishku's uh, facility was on that list. And so they started the union drive halfway through my employment. And so I ended up staying a little bit longer. Um, I started in June and then I left in like mid-October. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of like stumbled upon it in that I don't really have a lot of, like I'm still new to the industry and I am still new to journalism and I don't have like um, a huge background, a large background in investigations. So this is like a good opportunity that I was like met with to kind of like practice those skills and kind of like learn more about Amazon. And I've always been interested in labor and, um, kind of like learn more about labor in that way as well. Uh, but I also come from like a working class family background. Like most of my family members have worked in like this uh, service industry or in like factories or in construction, stuff like that. Amazon work is something that like is like closely linked to like my family and friends. Like many of us are typically like Mid, lower middle class, lower class people. So essentially that's how I kind of like stumbled upon it. Can you maybe describe what your initial impressions were of the working conditions, but I guess also the working environment. So the people that you're working with and the kind of work and the impact that that work had on um, your life and your time there. It was interesting. Like the they call it an interview, but it's not really an interview. You kind of already have the job. So you'd come in there, you like send your resume. And then like two weeks later, you come and talk to this HR person and choose your shifts. Um, essentially, we weren't really allowed to choose our shifts. It's only like we all start at uh, night as a nighttime worker from 7.15 to 5.45 a.m., and if you want to move to day shift, you kind of have to earn that spot by your productivity or like essentially like a spot opens up, but that's only available for permanent employees. So you can't um, be a, uh, a non-permanent employee and work for day shift. So everybody starts off in night shift. Um, essentially, they asked if I wanted to do training for like the little machines that they use in the facility to lift heavier items. And I said, no, at first. And then they were like, oh, but you have to be at least willing to go through training to work here. And I was like, okay, sure. I'll be willing to go through training. And then um, after that, um, they also like give you like a hundred dollars to buy like uh, shoes, like safety shoes as well. And then two weeks after that, you start working there. So you go through the first days just watching training videos about like safety, um, how to lift items, stuff like that. And then the next day they would have you actually like trying to pack items and kind of like learn like what, what you're essentially supposed to be doing as a packer. Um, I was on the pack team, so I, uh, as a packer, um, yeah. And then 
it was interesting because it's very like fast paced um and essentially like for other jobs like taping water spider which is like bringing boxes to workers um stuff like that you kind of just are expected to know it you get like maybe like a little bit of training and you kind of just do it um but like they do kind of like give you two weeks to kind of learn everything uh but with like very little guidance like after like two days you're kind of working mostly on your own um yeah and like it's interesting because everybody like complains about the back pain, the feet pain, um, how much physical labor it is. They're like, Oh yeah. The first month was like horrible. You feel horrible. You will be in so much pain, then you'll get used to it. Um, which is true. Uh, the first month was like the first two months were absolutely physically painful. Um, and most people usually take, they don't really work the full 40 hours. They usually try to get um, voluntary time off, which is sometimes offered like halfway through a shift or before a shift if there's too many workers. Um, they'll offer voluntary time off to workers to kind of like not necessarily fire them, but for that day you're like not working. Uh, if you grab it and it's very like sought out. Uh, and it goes by quickly. So like the minute you see BTO pop up on the little app that you use as a worker, um, you, it would be gone in like literally 10 minutes sometimes. But yeah, a lot of workers usually only work like they try to work 40 hours. Uh, physically, the pain, uh, like back pain, feet pain, such most workers typically work 30 hours ideally. Um, it's interesting because at the beginning, there wasn't really enough work for everyone because they over hired, I guess, or they tend to hire more workers than there is work. And then as the weeks go by, you see more workers quit. And it's like very common, like people talk about it all the time. Uh, it's like a running joke between workers too, like certain areas like shift off is just known to be so horrible that people quit in two days. Like that's kind of how it is. Um, and then by like the third or fourth month, I was kind of like used to the work and you kind of get used to people and you kind of like know what you're expected to do and like what management kind of expects from you. Um, I wasn't really put on pack as often because I wasn't as fast of a packer, but I was a really quick water spider I was really good at like helping people with their like looking for priority items so they tend to like put me as a water spider um they put me in, like psyop testing or in like vendors stuff like that um but you kind of like figure out what you're supposed to do by like the third or fourth month um and yeah it's interesting because most workers would say like they don't hate the job like, they'll say, oh, I like the job. It's just the back pain or, like, management's just, like, sometimes really mean or something like that. And they kind of, like, make, like, they kind of try to comfort themselves in a way. And, I mean, some workers, 
are more um, displeased with how Amazon is run. Um, typically workers that are like fast at packing or fast at like their jobs or like are really good at their jobs, they tend to be overworked more and they often feel underappreciated. Um, there's a lot of like racial tensions actually. That was an interesting one um, between different races, um, typically Indian workers and Filipino workers. Uh, there's a lot of tension between them. Um, gender wise, there's also a bit of this like management is a boys club and then workers or like packers tend to be mostly women. And so that's like um, a lot of like, I guess, subtle gendered kind of tensions um, or I guess subtle sex sexist remarks, I guess sometimes. When you mentioned um, these things like the subtle racial tension or um, the I guess, pain that workers have to go through. Um, and you also mentioned at the end there, the boys club and how sexist it can be for workers. Um, how does all of this connect to um, the wages that workers are making? And I guess the the larger um, labor context that might, you know, lead people into working in places like this that employ hundreds of people. Um, can you maybe speak to the larger context that's that's going on here that might influence these um, things that are that are negatively impacting workers? So many of the workers are typically immigrants or first or second gen um, racialized Canadians. And typically like they're very, they come to Amazon typically just looking for um, work, uh, either to kind of, you know, uh, pay their bills or to kind of like stay in the country as, uh, and get permanent residency. Um, like that one worker in the article, Layla, she, um, she's Filipino. She like needed papers to stay in Canada. So she needs employment. So she started working at Amazon, um, a lot of the racial tensions is, in my opinion, is kind of just um, like Indian and Filipino workers are just an abused workforce in Canada. They often come here looking for work, looking for a better um, situation from their home countries or like they're led to believe that Canada could be a place that is um, better than the Philippines or India. And they kind of accept work that they may not be getting a fair wage for that has dangerous working conditions just because they can't get any other work. And essentially even like with the gendered aspect of it, a lot of these women, they often can't stay um, longer. Um, they can't stay at work longer than they're expected to. So like to get into management, there's an expectation that you 
move up. So you start as like uh, an associate and then you move to like a process assistant. And but to be a process assistant, you have to work like um, overtime, I think. And then to go from there, you might get hired as an area manager. But the reality is most area managers are Canadian educated students. So typically it's this kind of like carrot on a stick. Like if you work hard, if you stay here long enough, you might eventually end up in a place where you have a permanent job where you get better wages, where you get like better working conditions. But the reality is most of these workers either quit or they just aren't eligible for better wages or like for opportunities that promise better wages. So yeah, moving to the union drive that launched when you were working there, can you maybe talk about the motivation for unionizing and why that was a push that was made by union organizers in Edmonton, specifically for the Amazon plant? Hmm. I think because in there's just been a lot more workers kind of um, pushing back. It's, the pandemic kind of re- revealed that workers are, you know, insanely important for our lifestyle, for everything that happens in Canada. And But a lot of times workers don't get fair treatment, um, especially during the pandemic. A lot of their safety and health was compromised. And now you're seeing a lot of workers kind of, you know, pushing back, demanding more. And I think just based off of America's um, Amazon, like, union efforts, um, this kind of, like, led to uh, labor organizations in Canada to think about their um, organizations here um, and seeing if they could need a union. I know that nobody really asked for the Teamsters to um, come to the Amazon warehouses. It was more Teamsters kind of like coming in and being like, we are giving them the option of unionization. I know a lot of workers are very hesitant about the union as well uh, from the the start. Um, And essentially like with I just think like a lot more workers are kind of like trying are now pushing back and seeing that they are uh, trying to get better wages, trying to get better working conditions. And, you know, um, and I think Teamsters kind of like saw that as an opportunity for them to try and unionize Amazon because there's just so much talk about unionization. Um, But I think for like workers on the ground, they don't really like, like Amazon workers on the ground, they may not really understand much about Canadian labor laws or much about unionization or much about unions in general. Um, So I think that was kind of like a disadvantage for the union drive as well. They didn't reach the quota for um, signed union cards. I think they got less than 40%. I think one Teamsters wasn't very like consistent and I think being consistent is important. They weren't there every week. They weren't there every day. I think uh, for a lot of workers, they just saw management more and that gave um, Amazon the upper hand because they can like, you know, 
have management talk to the workers like every day. Um, employee relations came around like almost like every week or so and talked to workers. Um, uh, I know when the union drive started, there was a little bit more like this team bonding efforts between um, like management kept pushing more team bonding exercises or whatever, um, stuff like that. And like also there was just like a bunch of essentially like Amazon would try to like feed into this culture of doubt and try to get workers to doubt that Amazon isn't that bad or that you're just overreacting or that there's kind of like uh, no reason to have a union or that a union is just more trouble and that's just better to kind of accept the working conditions as it is than it is to fight for better. Um, a lot of workers also ended up, this is a high turnover, like almost every three or four months uh, you get like a new batch of workers or like a lot of by every three or four months, you'll see like workers kind of like decline and then new workers come in. So many people quit so often um, that it's just like for them, they just didn't feel like it was worth the trouble of like even fighting for better working conditions because they weren't there long term. Um, many workers didn't really see themselves there long term either. Um, I also think. Um, a lot of workers just didn't trust Teamsters. They didn't really seem to tr find Teamsters to be a trustworthy union, which could lead, could be because of Amazon's union busting or because of like dominant conversations around unions. Um, typically, it is a risk for workers to unionize, but I think many of them just never really saw. Um, they, they didn't really see that it was worth the time or effort to kind of unionize essentially. And there's no really like pushback either against that thought. In my opinion, nobody was really like, oh no, this is why a union is good. This is what a union can do. But also like a lot of it is biased. You hear a lot of biased information. Obviously we're all biased, but, um, yeah, and then I also think for since their precarious nature, um, a lot of workers are just very fearful of losing their jobs and then losing this opportunity to stay in Canada. And, you know, um, or, you know, most people are just trying to, like, feed their kids or just, like, at the end of the day, they just want to go home and they're tired and a lot of them also work like another job. So they're kind of like, they don't really have the time to really look into what a union can do or what in, look into information about unionization really. So they kind of rely on other people to give them that information. Um, there was also a language barrier Many of them don't speak English uh, as a first language, so they may not understand like certain things that um, they're being told by Teamsters or by other management. 
or anything like that. And so they just kind of like, oh, well, I can't really understand what they're talking about. So I'm just not going to bother looking into it. Um, yeah. And I, I guess there's like multiple reasons why like the union drive failed. Teamsters is like very traditional in their approach. They're kind of like, there are a lot of them are also older. Um, and I don't think they, um, I just don't think like a traditional approach works anymore. Misinformation and like, you're always bombarded with information just because of like social media and like technology advancements. And like, you kind of have to like push other information to workers in some way. And especially since a lot of um, immigrants can easily be misled by more powerful people or powerful organizations to believe one thing, it does take a lot more effort to kind of push, I guess. Um, you kind of have to like fight for them. You kind of have to like spend a lot more time convincing them and kind of like showing like what you can really do for them. With this pretty steep historical reality of Canada relying on immigrant labor um, in in industries that are typically undesirable, um, physically demanding, low-wage industries, um, but still industries that require a certain level of skill and certainly, um, I guess, a certain level of like toughness, a certain level of... Um, perseverance to even do this kind of work um what do you see changing or staying the same or what do you see in the future of this reliance on this kind of labor yeah i think immigrant labor is just gonna be used even more in the future actually i think like i heard that canada's like bringing in like two million filipino workers in the next two years or something like that um, I don't remember the number exactly, so don't quote me on that. But yeah, they're bringing in more workers as the borders open up, as like um, our labor demands increase. Um, Amazon, especially during COVID and like um, the pandemic, people rely on e-commerce e a lot more. And they've gotten so comfortable with it that immigrant labor is just going to be like used even more. Um, I really think it could go. Canada could be doing so much more to better protect immigrants. And if they really need this labor, they should be doing better to ensure that they aren't being mistreated. Um, I would like to see more i would like to see can, canadian labor movements kind of like push to include immigrants more i think there's been some like really great um labor organizations popping up i think there was one in ontario with um i forgot their name but like with indian restaurant workers uh they've been advocating for them um and like, hopefully that momentum only ever increases. Um, but I don't think immigrant labor is gonna go anywhere. I don't think 
will ever really decrease um, or anything like that. But I do think people should be pushing for more. People should be trying to push, trying to include immigrants more in their labor movements. I feel like a lot of times people kind of forget about them. Um, and also kind of like looking at intersections of like gender and race would also better our labor movements. I don't really, I'm not a hopeful person. I'm more pessimistic. So I don't really think much will change, but at the same time, you never really know. So after that great interview with Ashlyn, we wanted to end the episode on maybe a little bit more of a positive note by bringing you some stories from around the province of what we would consider to be, you know, labor victories, you know, so workers coming out on top through organizing and through struggle. And this first story is pretty recent from May May 24th out of Lethbridge. So Starbucks workers in Lethbridge have made efforts to unionize. Um, and essentially, they're advocating for better working conditions, uh, better wages, and it looks like they've been pretty successful so far. They've filed an application for union certification, and um, that's already a pretty big step in getting the workplace that they have to essentially all agree to join the union. This is a step that wasn't even made possible by Amazon at the warehouse. Most of the workers there um, didn't get to the point where they're even able to to file this application. So uh, pretty big moves for, for Starbucks, yeah. Yeah, and Starbucks has been having really good, um, well, not Starbucks, but Starbucks workers have been having really good success. There you or go, Starbucks yeah. stores have been having really good success in the um, U.S. Uh, in unionizing. And I think what I've heard, at least, is that they are almost um, in a better spot to do that than maybe other companies because they do typically have a younger workforce. And um, they also kind of you know, in their like company brand already, maybe try and uh, align themselves with, you know, maybe more progressive or liberal values where the people who go and work there may already be a little bit more on board with um, something like this. So yeah, it's uh, definitely great to see that. And um, I don't know, kind of feels, uh, definitely feels like it's kind of part of that, that broader movement. And it's really cool to see that in, um, in Alberta. Um, and yeah, uh, another another little piece of uh, news that we wanted to highlight was just this week, uh, Edmonton video game workers vote to unionize and industry first in Canada. So basically, there's 16 video game development workers in Edmonton that voted to unionize. Uh, they actually work for a company based out of Ireland, um, but they their client basically is Bioware. Obviously, everyone knows that's based in um, Edmonton. So they they work with Bioware, but technically they work for that company in um, Ireland. The video game industry, obviously, everyone also knows is just so so common for workers to be um, overworked, um, exploited, and then just part of this system of a high high churn. Um, so it is uh, it is really good to see workers standing up for themselves in this industry. And um, I think there were a few, uh, I don't need to go into, the, into like the details here, but basically there were a few key aspects of their negotiations that they really felt were like lacking or that they weren't, weren't being um, 
provided. And I think a couple of those points actually uh, did get resolved even prior to the actual unionization happening. So I think that's a really good demonstration of how even just the, I guess you could say, threat of unionization creates greater accountability for um, employers. No, it really, really does. Um, And in the cases where that threat isn't enough, the great thing is that when you actually do have a union that's established, you can take things beyond the threat and actually go on a strike. So that's the next story that just happened this past January at Concordia, where the faculty at Concordia University in Edmonton launched the first ever faculty strike um, in Alberta's history at Concordia. So they actually have a union and yeah, they went forward with it and the strike didn't last for very long. I think it was about 10 days um, until they were actually able to come to an agreement with the university to have their demands met. So we're talking about academic staff who were burdened with um, a three course per semester course load um, on top of their research duties um, and with incredibly stagnant wages. Um, this is all happening while the university is seeing very high revenues and the university went ahead and bought a mansion in Edmonton just for the sake of it um, because they could. So yeah, it was really, really nice to see um, workers at Concordia being able to get that win for themselves um, and and really using the power that they do have um, in this in this really historic way so um, yeah, I think I think within all of the despair, within all of the um, challenges, um, there 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 is clearly a lot of hope. There's a lot of people who are getting together, who are fighting back, um, and um, some of them are getting results, which which is really really nice to see. Yeah, definitely uh, feels good to be able to highlight at least some some po- some positives that are happening and that are hopefully part of a broader movement or broader trend. Um, and this story then, yeah, I guess something else that is, this doesn't necessarily have to do with um, unionization, but I guess is more, uh, I guess you could say personal agency or personal empowerment. Um, also, I just heard of a story where someone left uh, an exploitative, uh, <laughs> um, uh, working uh, an exploitative position at uh, a non profit. So, I don't know. Maybe you know something about that. You know what? Yeah, I I, I think I know a few things about this. I'm, I've been laughing so much because Nicholas is, of course, referring to me um, and my own personal work situation. So, yeah, I've uh, this is this is going to be you know breaking news first um, first time on the pod. But yeah, I've decided to leave a position that I was working at, um, and a, a large reason for um, my departure um, was because of my i guess um the the exploitative nature of the work that i was doing so um a situation in a nonprofit environment which quite frankly i think the the biggest problem i have with the work that i did was it it definitely fit it, it served a crucial need i felt like there was a difference being made with the work that i did i think it was going towards um, a population that that really needed it um, and and quite frankly sometimes we were able to see the change that we were, we were making but um, 
what 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 really came down to it was was at what cost um and and the cost that that came down to really was was exploiting workers was paying workers um wages that were were quite frankly too low um often justifying this under the banner of um working as a nonprofit as that somehow justifies not making as much revenue or not making as much profit um, but then also, I think, continuously burdening workers with, with more, um, with more tasks, with more work, with work after hours. Um, so really infringing on, on all these rights and all these things. Um, again, in the name of, um, this nonprofit mission. So that somehow, if the work that you're doing is going towards a good cause, that that work can, you know, cross these boundaries that, um, in my opinion, yeah, definitely negative, negatively impacted my life um, as a worker. So with all these things in mind, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to continue to sign on to, you know, my own exploitation every day or to, I guess... Um, yeah, continue, continue in a, in a, in a position like that. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm calling it quits <laughs> um, and, yeah. and it's not easy to do <laughs> if I'm being quite honest, I'm not looking forward to these, these conversations or, you know, this resignation email, but I think when you're really pushed towards, um, burnout or when you can't necessarily see, um, I guess a solution um, on the horizon. Um, these things sometimes um, it's the best option, you know. Truly, yeah, yeah. Well, congrats, and um, yeah, you know, I'm glad you were. I'm glad you were able to make that decision. And I think, yeah, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about the labor market or worker exploitation is people not even being in a position where they have that kind of agency uh, over their employment situation um and are not in a in a place where they can choose to to leave their um their current work work situation so yeah definitely happy that you're you're able to uh make that call and yeah hopefully uh things will be looking up and um yeah i mean it's been it's been really fun working on the podcast recently i think you know we've gotten some uh gotten some good um engagement on uh, like socials and stuff. And I think we've been able to touch on a lot of things that we um, really cared about and touch on them in ways that are, you know, pretty candid and um, open. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about that. You know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, anyone listening has, you know, resonated with some of the stuff that we've uh, been able to talk about. We are kind of heading into summer here. So I think we are going to be restarting the Patreon which will be, I guess, yeah, at the start of July. So yeah, if you want to support the podcast, um, you can head over to our Patreon. And um, yeah, I guess we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. I, uh, I, I also, I think this, this me quitting this job is a great opportunity for me to um, invest more into the podcast. So yeah, I'm excited for that. And, uh, yeah, hope you, hope you keep listening and, uh, we'll, we'll see you soon.